0: Hello everyone, it's November 30th, 2021, so JWST had a bit of a scare, one of many over the years really, it got its spell wrong so to speak, but it's been given the green light and all seems to be well, no loose bolts, no tears in the sunshield, we're in the final stretch, but the show begins now, so lift off! And we throw the tower. Welcome to episode 336 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So
1: this this company called Outpost would like to essentially, I don't know if they make the satellites themselves or just give you a, uh, well, reusable satellites. They deploy a heat shield and everything and fly back on a nice little parasail.
0: Wow. Okay. Yeah. So this is interesting. I, I haven't heard about this, but basically it's one of those inflatable heat shields looks like. Mm and uh i don't know how possible is that i guess is my question
2: i mean po- totally possible just like like financially how feasible it, it would seem yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like i mean it, it's it's like great not to leave things in orbit when you don't need to but deorbiting them is way cheaper than landing them and like it's going to be w- really expensive to launch a reusable like any reusable spacecraft is expensive to launch because, like, you have the mass of, uh, of the reusability systems, but also you have to engineer everything so that it can reenter. I guess if you don't care about the payload and you're, you just want to reuse the chassis, but if you just want to reuse the chassis, like that's really expensive for a little bit of aluminum, you know, when you can just deorbit it. I don't know. It's, it's the future, I'm sure, but, uh, it's just a little, A little early, maybe.
1: Yeah, I think a a reusable, wanting to reuse your payload, right, or or recover your payload would really have to be a driving factor for this.
0: I think also, have heat shields, I can't remember what the status of the big one was. Well, I forget what it's called, but has this ever actually been tested? Because I don't think it has, right? Oh,
1: right. That one, I know exactly what you're talking about.
0: Yeah, the low-density, I can almost remember it. It's low-density hypersonic decelerator. Yeah,
2: low-density supersonic decelerator, LDSD. It's not hypersonic, which is what I thought, Yeah. You know, this is supersonic.
1: And I recognize the shape of that one. It looks like a big, it looks yeah. like a cake to me.
2: Oh, Hyad is the one that I was thinking of—hypersonic inflatable aerodynamic decelerator.
0: Now, obviously, that's much bigger, and I imagine. Well, actually, uh-huh. I, I don't know how big these ones are, but uh, sure, I guess in principle it should work. But it seems pretty tricky to bring something back from. You know, I don't know. I, I think
2: the I think inflatable decelerators make a lot of sense. They they don't get you that much density reduction? I mean, it, it really depends on, on your spacecraft. If you've got a really small spacecraft, I would think that you don't really need that much equipment. But if it's a bigger spacecraft, yeah, then inflatables start making sense.
1: I'd like to see it where launch prices come down so much yeah. that, I don't know, basically maybe governments could just subsidize requiring you to deorbit your spacecraft or return it safely using a method like this because... And that's the whole problem with the space debris mm-hmm. <laughs> situation up there in the first place is that there's no market. Yeah.
2: For- like when you, when you said, yeah, uh, subsidize, I was just thinking, like, you know how there are like, uh, tampon dispensers and condom dispensers in like bathrooms? Mm-hmm. Like imagine if like it's <laughs> just like a, uh, what's the tape one called? De- not decelerator tape, deorbit tape. Like, you know, if, the, mm-hmm. if there's just like a, uh, modified, you know, decelerator, like low cost decelerator devices that are just modified COTS uh, products. And they're just like in a dispenser. And it's like, oh, you're putting a CubeSat up. Okay. Don't, don't forget to grab one of these guys. And here's, <laughs> here's some double sided tape that you can just slap that on there.
1: Yeah, be safe when you're in orbit.
2: Really, really what it comes down to is actually, you know, finding people for space debris.
0: Mm-hmm. In this case, they want to bring it back down. And like yeah. you said, you know, like in the beginning, I don't know quite what the use case for that is. I mean, unless you have some kind of an experiment that you want to bring back down. Right. But that'd be about I mean, it. it's,
2: it's always going to be extra, right? Because no matter how many things we burn up in the atmosphere, I can't imagine that the cost of aluminum will be worth <laughs> recycling yeah. payloads, but who, who knows? Yeah. It's, it's more about that. That's what kind of shocked me was that it's, they they're talking about it as reusable satellites, but really what it is is recoverable satellites.
0: Well, I mean, there's this, and then there's the repair and refueling of satellites on orbit. So that's the other that route yeah, where that you could makes go. a lot of
2: sense, doesn't it? We're, we're, that's already making sense.
1: So I think the, the real value behind this is just adding another idea.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: So JWST Bonk, uh, that's the title we have, uh, and that's what happened. It Actually, I don't know if there was a bonk. There was just some vibration. Yeah, it's was more, more like a, a twang. Yeah, twang. Yeah. That's a better yeah. word. Yeah. So there was a clamp, a band clamp which is hard to say without thinking band clamp band camp band clamp um, that uh, during i guess this was payload integration right onto the vehicle or at least in preparation for that uh, there was a clamp that came loose and caused a twang so or a little bit of vibration the thing is we don't know how much it cost uh, for various reasons but uh, I guess it's been given the go-ahead but it was uh, delayed from the 18th to the 22nd in the show notes we have that it was initially planned to launch in 2007 so I guess a couple more Days, so it's not a big deal. <laughs> yeah, I
2: feel
1: like any story about JWST should include that 2007 year. Yeah, because yeah. it's, it's stunning.
2: You you either have to include the original launch year or the original budget, one of the two.
1: <laughs> and and I think. At least for me, it was. It's it, well, hopefully for somebody out there. If you don't know what a clamp band is,
0: or is it a clamp band, or is it a band clamp? I thought it was a band clamp.
1: NASA referred to it as a clamp band.
0: Well, they're two different things. So, what's a band clamp?
1: I was thinking you you could clamp things longitudinally or laterally. I guess would be the other way, right? And I wasn't quite sure exactly what this one had meant, but this this was until I actually saw what these spacecraft clamp bands look like. That this is this is like a wide ring that essentially goes around the entire base of the uh, whatever part of the spacecraft that's going to get stuck to the uh, uh, payload attach fitting and clamp the whole thing into mm-hmm. into position, right? As opposed to, like, if, if I Google band clamp, I see a lot of these smaller ones that you could imagine, like, having a bunch of these holding down a single uh, interface, as opposed to just one large one that wraps around. Does that make sense? I'm trying to, it, it's tough without like being able to draw a picture of <laughs> what I have in my brain right now. But
2: yeah, well that that's the thing is it's like you can clamp laterally, longitudinally, vertically, or radially. Mm. It's like a, it's like a totally different direction, right? And so like a like a band clamp David would be mm-hmm. like a, a radial type of clamp either like a hose clamp with you know with a little worm gear and it's like a metal band and you tighten down the worm gear or there are ratcheting ones for like woodworking making frames and that kind of thing uh, which use webbing but i believe this is something this is something different
1: i guess it's not the whole it's just part of it but think of the payload separation system itself like think of that visualize that when you're trying to visualize this particular clamp band
2: it's a, it's actually it's a it's a it's a band of clamps or a ring of individual yeah, clamps that's yeah, a good way of putting it a band yeah. of clamps
0: rather than right. a yeah mm-hmm. there you yeah. go
2: and that's yeah. that's why clamp band makes sense cuz you could also say like led band or you know uh, a wire band or like maybe that's not a good one, but...
0: <laughs> I get what yeah. you're saying, though, yeah.
2: Yeah. Okay, I guess I guess in the show notes we'll have to have uh, some band clamps and some clamp bands. So,
1: JWST has had this long journey, and it's getting very close to the end of the road. Uh, they already had uh, shipped it on a boat to Karoo, uh, where right they uh, had to keep it kind of secretive, uh, allegedly, so that way pirates wouldn't attack. The boat, which I guess you know, which I guess makes sense, but uh, apparently the astronomers who 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 kind of who knew better were able to follow its progress. You, know, you just literally look at you look at images of whichever canal it passed through and just see that it was there. And so. In any event, they were prepping this at a facility uh, in Karoo, uh, like I said, attaching it to the, uh, the launch vehicle adapter where the clamp band was, and this was under the responsibility of Ariane Spass at this point, point. and unfortunately yeah the 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 thing was suddenly released and sent a vibration through the observatory and they didn't know like you alluded to before just how bad it was going to be because they have sensors all over the spacecraft and the uh and the telescope uh, during table uh, during shake tests uh, acoustic tests during transit on the boat there was a lot of waves that it was uh, experiencing and so during all of that they were able to monitor what was happening specifically to the components. But now because they're finally getting ready for launch, they had taken all those sensors off because you don't want to keep them on there during the actual launch, of course. And so as a result, they didn't have that data that they would have had otherwise. And so you could just imagine the the concern, but they essentially put together a bunch of investigations and a review board and uh, they used the word certainty. They're certain that there was no damage to any of the, uh, Spacecraft components, and so that's very important since there's hundreds of potential single point failures and a month long deployment sequence. I couldn't think of a spacecraft that I would want something like this, that I would not want something like this to happen to anymore. than <laughs> yeah. JWST in terms of just the com- sheer complexity of it. Yeah.
0: Of all the <laughs> spacecraft in the world, it had to be this one, huh?
1: Right. Yeah. <laughs> this continues the uh, the seeming curse that it has because yeah, it had the 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 there was the issue with the heat shield tearing a few years ago the most recent delays were right because of the uh the fairings for Ariane 5 were acting Mm -hmm. off nominal uh, and they wanted to make sure that that was squared away before of course they put the uh, jwst in there but we'll see what happens
2: (laughs) so so do you think that this is a self-fulfilling prophecy at this point like when when you get a vehicle that is so delayed does the sheer fact that it's already been delayed encourage additional delays? Like, you know, people are rushing to make up delays and, and pushing hard to to try and avoid delays, and that just makes it worse. I could see that
0: in this case, that would mean that somebody made some kind of an oversight. And I guess it's we we would have to say that we don't know exactly. I mean, like we know mm-hmm. what went wrong, but why did it go wrong? So yeah, I guess yeah, that would be the thing we would need to know.
2: I
1: I had seen some some tweets from some astronomers that pointed towards a, uh, it was a failure of the piece of equipment. And so it wasn't a uh, operator error or something like it seemed like it was a defective, uh, some component of the uh, clamp band was defective. That's not been that's not coming from nasa that's coming from people reading between the lines of uh, Hmm. these official reports
0: yeah so i guess unless there was supposed to have been an inspection of that piece of equipment first and they skipped it then it's really not their fault (laughs)
2: Mm -hmm. so so let me also ask you guys how do you feel about uh what was it a uh, three-day anomaly review period does that feel rushed because like this, this is a big spacecraft. And if you didn't have proper instrumentation on it for, you know, detecting this kind of damage, like.
0: Yeah, that's a probably a better point just because most anomaly reviews don't happen that quickly. <laughs> so yeah. this, that does seem kind of rushed. I was kind of but surprised also, to hear that.
2: I feel like most anomalies are, are bigger than you know a clamp releasing a little early Mm
0: -hmm. and uh, well in one thing i don't know if dennis you mentioned it but uh they did say that most of the energy of you know that vibration went into the spacecraft bus and not the actual observatory so Mm. you know because that's what sits between it and the observ or like the launch mount and the observatory you have the bus there and so
2: the observatory bones connected to the bus (laughs) bone
0: And so the bus is much more robust and uh, probably, you know, I mean, that wasn't meant to be a pun. I just couldn't think of a better word. I know. I know. So, yeah, you probably don't have to worry about that as much. And so I guess it might be a very straightforward conclusion that, yeah, it's fine. But it does seem kind of interesting that in order to do a full inspection, they would have to unpack it. Completely, and yeah. mm. that would take a lot longer. And so yeah. you can say goodbye to launching anytime this year for sure.
1: Yeah, I'd be most worried about the instrument package because that part, I think that's that module you would have to, yeah, you have to open it up and really inspect the things piece by piece. And that they couldn't do at this point.
2: Well, and, and what kind of damage would you really expect? I mean, like that kind of vibration shouldn't be enough to damage solder joints or something like that. Like th- this thing is going to launch and presumably this, you know, this bang or this vibration was like much less severe than some of the things it's going to encounter on the way up. So like, so, so, uh, is it planet? No, it's not planet money. It's, um, it's a BBC podcast. Uh, I can't remember what it's called, but basically their, their MO is to ask, is this a big number? Like they cover news items from a, and, and talk about the statistics and like their question is always, You know, like, here's a number that's going around in headlines. Is that actually a big number? And so here, like, I don't even know what kind of magnitudes we're looking at during launch. I don't know what kind of magnitudes we're looking at in the integration facility. So, like, that that's why I'm kind of making, like, uh, noises, because I just I don't know.
1: Just consistent with that is that a word that's being thrown around a lot is caution. Mm -hmm. Right. Just given the the dollar value and the amount of time and people labor that's gone into this spacecraft that it's it's really out of an abundance of caution that uh, that they even did this review in the first place Mm -hmm. rather Mm -hmm. than just be like, well, you know, (laughs) I guess it's okay uh, if it got
2: shook up a little bit. So, so, I mean, I'm willing to to stipulate that that's the case. And and if it is like how much value are you actually adding by doing a three-day review? I get, you know, like it's, it's good to do, but like, I wonder if they're like what the odds were that they could actually catch something, but who knows? I mean, it's, it's all cumulative, right? Like damage from, from this kind of thing I'm assuming is, is just cumulative. You, you do this once and it's fine. You do it a hundred times and you start having issues. So.
1: And thank you. Deathkin in the chat is pointing out a tweet from Christian Davenport. I'll just read it. NASA's doctors Z says that the clamp that released on the JWST came off, quote, in a way that it was not designed to come off, end quote. There you go. So, because the whole point of these is that you essentially have, you load these springs, and and the clamp band holds the springs in their, you know, tight configuration, and then you mechanically release that once you're on orbit, and then the sp- Brings push the spacecraft away.
2: Yeah. I I wonder, I wonder if not designed to come off this way is just down to the fact that it's under load, right? Like there, gravity exists here. And so, you know, you shouldn't like the, the, when the band clamp is fastened, it's happy to hold on to the spacecraft under load, but it's not supposed to release until it's in free fall. Um, and I wonder if that's just the issue. And I wonder if the, The question here was, is this clamp going to open when it shouldn't? Were these loads too high? Is this a design issue or, or, you know, uh, resulting from previous damage? And I wonder if that's what it really came down to. And, you know, it's, yeah, it's good to run tests on your, on your science equipment, but we're not really worried about that being damaged. What we're worried about is this clamp not being fit to task. And I I wonder if, if that's really what, what we're looking at here. Oh yeah. Colin says as much more succinctly being outside his parameters suggests like something, uh, suggests something like it was too tight or too loose, making it break or slip off unexpectedly and not the way it should. And yeah, exactly. Unexpectedly, I guess is the, is the key word there.
1: And so just while looking into this, uh, I, I wasn't quite sure exactly how the mission profile for JWST looked and what it's, uh, uh, deployment sequence was but evidently it's being launched uh directly into its transfer orbit uh less than half an hour after launch it'll be cruising on its way to the l2 uh, where it'll go into right the lisa Jew or halo orbit and it will be deploying all these various parts right just not just expanding the sun shield but having there's there's flaps and covers and panels and all these things, and the mirrors folded, and the secondary mirror has to come down, and all that stuff needs to happen, and it's going to be doing that really only, it sounds, sounds like just a few days after after launch, uh, while it's still on its transfer orbit. Hmm. And so I guess maybe while you have your higher bandwidth, you want to be able to communicate with it better, I guess, I don't know. In any event, that's, that's when they're going to be
0: doing it. If they launched it into, like, low-Earth orbit, say, first, that would be a much mm-hmm. more complex operation. And if something was wrong, like if they did, you know, various checks and something and they had some kind of an anomaly, what could they do?
1: Yeah. Probably I don't, not I don't much. Think, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, if it screws up early versus later, it's still a screw-up. Yeah. As <laughs> as maybe it's, it's just easier to interact with the spacecraft while it's closer. Because, I, I mean, other than having, you know, better bandwidth with uh, your communications i can't think of much of a difference between early in the transfer orbit or later in the transfer
2: orbit. like i think we sound really negative about all this but like really i think for me what i really want to emphasize to to myself and i guess anybody listening is like it's not that we're feeling negative about this mission it's that we're slowly appreciating all of the complexities and like i think really what we would what we would prefer to do is like build up get get a build up going now for when it is successful uh so that mm. you know we can go look at look at how hard this was and look at what uh you know a success this is and and how great this is and to appreciate that you really have to you really do have to come off as negative sometimes, you know, so.
0: Well, at least I don't feel negative in the sense that I don't support yeah. the mission or in any way like that, you right. know, like I'm totally positive about it. I'm just, you know, a little bit worried, but that's about it, which I think yeah, everyone worried. is.
2: Worried, yeah, worried, sure. Yeah, we we love JWST. I mean, it, it sucks that it's taken so long and that it's taken up so much budget, but like it it is a, a very, in, I mean, potentially like this could be, one of the major drivers of human knowledge about the universe like this yeah. it's really cool it's really powerful it's really worthwhile and also it looks really cool like
1: <laughs> <laughs> it is it is a great look in spacecraft yeah and and if you really want to put an optimistic spin on it if things were going too smoothly that would make me even more anxious hmm.
2: right? oh this boy that's true
1: like that kind of uh, everything you know against all odds managed to make it uh, uh, to its final orbit and deploy and operate successfully for yeah. longer than its expected lifetime, even after all the problems. Although I don't think this is going to be one of those ones where it drags on extra long. Well, oh, actually, it could maybe because it's being passively cooled, so it doesn't have coolant that'll run out. So, yeah, hopefully it'll live beyond its operational, its uh, target operational lifetime.
0: All right, so let's do three short and sweet this weekend. Ben, you have the first one.
2: Okie doke. Uh, Japan to recruit astronauts for the first time in 13 years. As part of an effort to support the Artemis program, JAXA is set to begin its first recruiting class since 2009, when three astronauts were last selected. In addition to potentially flying on Artemis missions, the new class will be assigned to long-term work on the ISS, the Kibo module on board ISS, and stays at the Lunar Gateway. The agency announced it will receive applications from December of this year through March 2022, with the final selection revealed in February 2023. JAXA also plans a campaign to encourage women to apply, as the nation's current astronaut corps has no active female astronauts, but rather seven men with an average age of 52.
0: And then next up, Hubble makes a partial recovery. So, after a glitch last month in Hubble's synchronization of internal messaging, the telescope hasn't partially repaired. The Caused all five of Hubble's scientific instruments to go into safe mode, but two of these have been brought back online, the ACS, or the Advanced Camera for Surveys, and the WFC3, or the Wide Field Camera 3, which is Hubble's most heavily used instrument. Engineers have also been working on a method to prevent further safe modes in the future should the synchronization issue reoccur. These changes will be uploaded in a few weeks pending further testing.
1: And finally, Rocket Lab to manufacture more spacecraft components. Rocket Lab announced it has entered an exclusive license agreement with the Applied Physics Laboratory, or APL, at Johns Hopkins University to provide software-defined radios, or SDRs, to spacecraft. The SDR, named Frontier-S by Rocket Lab, is based on APL's own Frontier radio, which is flown on missions from the Parker Solar Probe to the Emirates Mars mission. The new SDR can be used for both deep space and LEO missions and can be flown on spacecraft as small as six U3 sets. The radios will fly on Rocket Lab's second photon mission and are currently being integrated into the company's capstone mission for NASA. Wow, they're so just making all kinds of stuff. between that and the gyro, yeah, the, the reaction wheels.
2: Can, can we talk about Frontier S by Rocket Lab, though? Because it sounds like a clothing brand. <laughs> I
1: know. I, I had to do a... A few double takes when I when I saw that. It wasn't just Frontier S. but
2: Fr- Frontier S by Rocket Lab. Feet APL.
1: And it's it's all in black and white whenever you want to wear the parts.
2: Yeah, it c- comes in any color as long as it's black.
0: So moving on to this week in spaceflight history, uh, we have a lot of winners. Uh, we have uh, the Greek, Jessica Miller, Harbor City Brewing, who I guess is Steigarfield, we think. Uh, then we have some good guesses from Cy Kyle and Peter McMiley. So the clue is the antihero. I didn't know what that was in reference to, but they did. So Dennis, enlighten us. What, who, or who is the antihero?
1: Well, we will find out. The event was the 2nd of December, 1990, and it was the launch of Soyuz TM-11. So first to give you a heads up, uh, hopefully with JWST and us talking about clamp bands in detail, uh, we covered enough of the sort of hardware aspects of the show, that this is going to be a history lesson. There wasn't that much really to say uh, hardware-wise, but I think it's still very interesting history. And so December of 1990, we have a little background. This was the time of uh, Perestroika and Glasnost, the uh, Soviet Union opening to the rest of the world uh, uh, and kind of cooling relations and uh, ultimately ending up with their disillusion about 12 months later. And so a few years before then, uh, in 87, a TV crew from uh, the Tokyo Broadcasting System, or TBS, uh, was visiting Baikonur, uh, visiting places that they typically would be, you know, militarily sensitive and off limits in the older school Soviet Union. But now, right, they're trying to be more open. And so this crew is checking things out. And the head uh, of the TV crew jokingly asked whether they could hitch a ride on a rocket and uh, they were told da was the answer they got uh and so it turns out that yeah they really did, <laughs> they really did want to uh arrange this soviet japanese flight because uh at this point if you are familiar with the history that was happening the soviet union uh needed money And this ultimately is not just an event about this launch, but also an event of the first time that the Soviet Union started taking millions of dollars to fund their spaceflight program by commercial partners uh, and other entities. And so uh, it took a couple years, but they were able to finalize this uh, flight, get the details down that, again, this TBS, uh, not Turner Broadcasting Station uh, in the United States, but uh, Tokyo Broadcasting System. And this flight, depending on the source that you look at, uh, was anywhere from 12 million to $37 million. And, uh, allegedly, uh, NPO Energia was, uh, uh jacking up the price over time. Uh, uh, according to one source, uh, or some news reports that they were basically, you know, constantly, they were kind of just stringing along, uh, TBS and saying, Oh yeah, actually there's this, uh, this new, uh, cost that has appeared that we need to add a few more million that we weren't anticipating and so on. And so, uh, TBS was, uh, this was a lot of money, especially back then and half of it was paid by uh, their main sponsors uh, Sony and Minolta uh, while their numerous other advertisers split the remainder of the cost. Uh, I believe uh, one uh, one of these advertisers one of these companies managed to get their uh, logo slapped on the side of a rocket of the rocket, uh, the Soyuz and uh, another thing that was happening at this time was NASA and Jax's forerunner uh, before it became the bureaucratic Voltron that it was, NASDA, uh, NASA and NASDA were working on their own mission that they were intending to fly the first Japanese person in space in 1988. That ultimately turned out to be uh, Mori uh, Mamoru. But in 1988, that was two years after Challenger, right, had grounded all missions for a couple of years. And then on top of that, there were other delays. And so ultimately, uh, this joint Soviet-Japanese mission kind of flew in under the radar Mm -hmm. and scooped the first uh uh, NASA NASDA mission. So the first uh Japanese astronaut in space was Mori Mamoru, but this one that TBS was vying for and paying for, well, it was going to be flying one of their employees
0: to space. Wow. And this all started as like a just like an offhand joke.
1: It was it was essentially a uh it was like a media stunt. Um it was some combination of the company wanting to celebrate its fortieth year anniversary, but also to boost ratings by having it be a generate a lot of publicity and so they they really threw down a lot of money uh, for this (laughs) i'll say Um, yeah tens of millions of dollars but yeah yeah so so 163 tbs employees applied uh they narrowed it down in a few different uh rings and this included or a few different cuts and this included you know journalists uh camera people uh you know just as long as you were an employee you could apply and uh ultimately it got down to uh, seven people and then finally to the final two. And the final two were Akiyama Toy- Toyohiro and Kikuchi Ryoko. And so the former was a 48 uh, year old chain smoker and <laughs> <laughs> the latter was a 26 year old uh, camera woman. And some sources say Akiyama would smoke uh, four packs a day. And, uh, you know, that's, 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 that, that, that is consistent with what some chain smokers smoke. Uh, don't want to be judgmental here. And in fact, I, I thought this would be a fun, uh, thing to point out. One of my favorite words in Japanese is called, uh, uh, Hotaruzoku, which literally translates to firefly tribe. And that's the term they give for smokers that have to stand outside and kind of smoke mm. together in a bunch huh. <laughs> when there's a restrictory because, you know, the little, Cigarettes are like fireflies, mm-hmm.
2: essentially. Yeah,
1: uh, these were the final two, and one of them was going to fly, and the other would be the backup. Uh, but during training at uh, Baikonur, uh, Kikuchi, the 26-year-old camerawoman, got appendicitis, and uh, so it turns out that Akiyama Toyohiro, the 48-year-old chain smoker,
2: <laughs> became
1: the anti-hero that was the first Japanese person to fly into space. And so that's where the clue came from, is uh, he, he wow. the New York Times called him uh, an anti-hero uh, in an article that they wrote about him. And, you know, there were other references to him as an anti-hero as well.
2: Why in the world did you not go with Firefly Tribe?
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's too obscure. <laughs> like, that That
2: is, that is such a good word. Um, Isn't that cool? <laughs> not trying to criticize, but like, that's good.
1: No, I'm picking up. I'm just glad I was able to shoehorn that into this. Uh, yeah. Inclusive.
0: Yeah. But so so, why did they call him the antihero?
1: Because right at this point, this had still been true, even though shuttle had been flying for, uh, well, if this is 1990, if shuttle had been flying for eight years, uh, I guess six of those actually flying, they still, even though they opened it up to everybody, right? That was kind of a big thing about one of the big things about shuttle. The the civilian astronauts were still pretty remarkable people. You know, mm-hmm. they they were fit as a fiddle. They had you know uh, amazing uh, credentials and accolades and were super serious, awesome people. Yeah. Whereas Akiyama again was this older. He had good eyesight apparently. You know, <laughs> he, had, he had to he had to pass some tests and everything. But he he was a chain smoker and uh, when he when he got on orbit, uh, I mean, he was he he just was maybe not so much an antihero, but like he was an everyman kind of you mm-hmm. know while he was up there. So, the crew, in addition to uh, his title for this uh, for his mission, was uh, research cosmonaut, um, and he didn't have a backup. Like I said, uh, Kikuchi had gotten appendicitis, uh, but uh, he flew with uh, two uh, cosmonauts. Uh, co- the commander was uh, Viktor Afanasyev, and the flight engineer was uh, Musa Manarov. And, uh, I thought this is just, you know, fun little bit of trivia. The, the backup flight engineer was Sergei Krikalev, uh, who is not only just, a you know, I guess head of the cosmonaut corps. I don't know his exact title at Roscosmos right now, but he's, you know, the big deal at Roscosmos. And of course, he was on Expedition One. And this mission, right? 1990, this was a Soyuz flight to Mir. And so, uh, not only did, uh, Akiyama get to go to space, but he got to go and check out Mir, which, uh, was a very interesting, place, to say the least. After launch, uh, it uh, took two days to rendezvous with the station, and uh, once they docked, uh, the cosmonauts were going to stick around until May of next year, while Akiyama was only going to be there for uh, a little over one week. And uh, they weren't the only ones on board. Uh, the Mir 7 crew of two had already been on board since August of that year, and that was the uh, the Gennady's, uh, Gennady Manikov and Gennady Strykolov. And so, uh, as part of his time up there, uh, he was for an anti-hero. Akiyama was very, uh, serious and studious in a lot of ways. Um, he, you know, he took his job up there seriously. He didn't try to be a, uh, a tourist. And so he was scheduled to make a, uh, a 10-minute, uh, TV broadcast and two 20-minute radio broadcasts every day. And while he was there, he's, there's just really a lot of great, uh, quotes that come from him where he's, you know, talking to, you know, he, He really was, this was his more of being an everyman um, uh, when he would make these broadcasts and uh, talk about what it was like being on orbit. And uh, uh, as part of a science experiment, he brought six Japanese tree frogs. And it turns out some of the frogs were a little chunkier than the other ones. And the uh, larger frogs were adapting to space much better than the thinner frogs. And so uh, a quote from one of his reports uh, describing the situation was, quote, Fat Japanese frogs in space love the feeling of weightlessness. Thin Japanese frogs act as if they would rather be back in Yokohama. <laughs> and so I, I, I had thought of how I could stick uh how I could make fat Japanese frogs uh into the group for, for this, but I decided to go with the antihero instead. Yeah. <laughs> but um as far as yeah, uh kind of what makes him a bit of an anti-hero, he really missed his smokes. Uh, he, <laughs> I don't want to say he complained about it, but he did bring that up a lot. Uh, he got space sick while he was there pretty badly, uh, initially in particular. Uh, he, they told him to pack light, so he wound up not bringing enough underwear. And so he really was just like, you know, I mean, he, he had gone through the, what, year and a half of training or whatever at, uh, Baikonur, but he, you know, he was a, he was a proper civilian. That's for sure. And, uh, really great guy, it sounds like too. And so after, uh, that seven, after about seven days, 21 hours and 54 minutes, uh, he touched down, uh, returning on a Soyuz, on Soyuz TM-10, uh, with the Mir-7 crew, which I had mentioned, right, had been there, uh, uh on orbit already. And, uh, once outside the capsule, the very first thing, uh, Akiyama said was, uh, asking for a beer and a cigarette.
2: <laughs> and, so,
1: <laughs> and, uh, Chris, uh, AKA Stigarfield in the chat is pointing out that, uh, uh, before liftoff asked what he looked forward to most upon his return to earth uh he said allegedly that or he said that i can 't wait to
0: have a smoke like you would think you 're going to space like you wouldn 't care you know what I mean like everything else but i don 't know yeah. that's that 's crazy <laughs> that's, that's that's it's like that 's what he had to say yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> yeah well I think his yeah his first words on orbit were uh i 'm looking out the window now. <laughs> <laughs> i i, I could pull up the exact quote uh or no I, wow i nailed it i'm looking out the window now Was his first words on orbit
0: oh very plainly spoken
1: <laughs> yeah you know he he hurt his back a little bit on landing but uh allegedly that was nothing that a massage and a warm shower couldn't fix and he felt fine after a couple of days and um yeah and he actually had ended up receiving an order of people's friendship uh award uh from Gorbachev for, uh, improving Russian Japanese relations. And he, you know, he basically has had a long career since then. Uh, and now is actually, or not now, well, now and has been for years affiliated with, uh, he, he got a position with the uh, Kyoto University of Art and Design. So he's a professor there since 2011. Very interesting guy. A uh, very interesting little slice of space history, uh, yeah. in my opinion. Um, right, and so now you can uh, go that one level further when, uh, if, if people are talking trivia about, you know, the first uh, uh, civ- the first space tourist. Yeah, that was Dennis Tito. But um, uh, when it comes to the first uh, civilian uh, in space that was paid for by commercial uh, flights, not 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 a governmental astronaut or cosmonaut. Uh, it was, uh, Akiyama Toyohiro.
2: I'm kind of obsessed with this dude. Like, I, I don't think like at, at first my impression was, Oh yeah, he's, you know, he's a chain smoker. He's addicted to nicotine. I can understand like that being a little bit of a fixation, but I don't think that's what it was. I think he's just one of those super down to earth, like realist uh, Japanese citizen. Like, like it, it's such a part of the culture, like this one <laughs> archetype. So he actually, um, he was married. He had two kids. He actually left his wife because he wanted to go, he wanted to go farm in Fukushima prefecture. And like, he want he wanted to go be a farmer and his wife is like, I'm assuming his wife didn't want to come with him. So he's like, okay, well, I'm going to go farm. We can, we can get divorced, but like, I want to go do this. And like, just like that simple no nonsense, like archetype, like it, it's a, it's a stereotype, really. And like, I, I kind of love this guy, like just. Yeah, I, w- I went to space, it was, you know, it was space. Now now I'm yeah. here and I, I wanna do my farming. Like, I wanna go play with my plants. Like, I love that.
0: <laughs> it's strange it's to me that I had never heard of this at all. Like, I knew about yeah. uh, the American astronauts who had done, I don't know how many tours aboard Mir, but there were, you know, four or five of them at least, I think, but how did I not know about this guy that came before all that, you know? Mm. Yeah, this is like one of those bits of spaceflight history that I just don't know how I didn't know about it because it's so yeah. memorable.
2: Mm-hmm. So he, he complained not only about not having cigarettes on orbit, but also, uh, he really wished that he had brought along some natto, yeah, uh, oh, fermented <laughs> soybeans. Um, and during an interview, uh, afterwards, um, he was, he was on like a, a radio broadcast, like he was doing a radio interview and he had been worried about his kids watching too much TV. So during this interview, he said, please tell Ken Ken and Naoko to study. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like pleading with his wife, like, hey, make sh- make sure they're not watching too much TV. Like th- this guy, like there are people who have their heads in the clouds or their heads in the stars. And like this guy is just about the practical realities of Earth. I love yeah. it. He's the wrong person to go to space, but that makes him the right person to go to space. What What a character. And like, yeah, That's you're right. totally right. Anti-hero. He shouldn't have been like, I love that his competition was a 26 year old and he wound up flying to space that's yeah he was he
0: ended up being the healthier of the two yeah
1: go figure
2: good good job dennis this was this was a gem thank you yeah absolute gem okay uh so that's uh this week uh and next week is going to be the 7th through the 13th of december uh david do you have a clue for us
0: uh, yes, I do. So it is next week in 1974. The clue is Hitze und Geschwindigkeit. So we're doing the old say it in a foreign language. That's your clue. Yep. Yep. <laughs> if you speak German, which I'm assuming that everyone knows that much, uh, Hitze und geschwindigkeit, you can't mistake that for any other language, but, um, but right, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So yeah, break out your dictionaries. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. So, so you get a clue and you get a bonus hint of which language it is. Uh, and, and if, if you speak German, uh, or if you are not a German speaker, uh, but you do have a guess, uh, give us that guess, uh, tweet us with the hashtag this week SF and good luck, everybody.
0: Good luck. All right. So let's move on to upcoming space. That events got a lot of those this week. So Ben, I guess you'll start off and then we'll go from there.
2: Okay. Uh, so yeah, first up, uh, we're going to jump to Wednesday. So the day after the show comes out, that's going to be Starlink four, three, uh, launching on a Falcon nine block five out of, uh, Cape Canaveral, uh, looks like they're doing SLC 40 for this one. Um, this is 53 satellites. I'm hesitating because last time we set a number and we were Mm -hmm. wrong about the number. It was one of those smaller ones. (laughs) So I'm going to, I'm going to say 53 because that's what launch library says. And, uh, you can, you can tweet it them. So, uh, this is Wednesday, December 1st at 23
0: 20 hours UTC. And then after that on December 2nd is a um, well once again we did this one last week so I guess it was delayed but we mm-hmm. have a new launch window for uh, the Soyuz STB frigate and that is carrying the two Galileo satellites uh, for Europe we had discussed this last week so it's part of their global navigational satellite system. Once again they'll be launching it looks like the same window because I think the time is the same as well just a different day which would be at 0 hours and 31 minutes UTC and that's launching from Kourou in French Guiana from the Soyuz launch complex. So hopefully this time uh, they'll have a successful launch or a launch.
2: So I, I don't know if we if we want to talk about the nomenclature, but S, S, T, A, and B are different fairing sizes. So they're all 2.1. The Soyuz 2.1, which is like I think it's Soyuz U is the is the parent, but uh, yeah. STA and STB are the same as saying 2.1a and 2.1b.
1: Then next up we have a launcher one flight. so this one uh, will be the first since uh, tubular bells back in June uh, this mission's called above the clouds and we'll take a uh, we'll take eight R&;D satellites from US government agencies. As well as a couple of Earth observation nanosats from a Polish company called Sat Revolution, uh, to a 500-kilometer circular orbit inclined at 45 degrees, and you know this is a horizontal air launch with a window uh, uh, on December 2nd from 1800 UTC to 2200 UTC, and they will be flying literally out of the uh, Mojave Air and Spaceport. <laughs>
2: Okay, then after that, we have uh, what is definitely an event and not a literal launch, although it may be a figurative launch. So this is uh, a publicity event from Rocket Lab. They're going to be talking about Neutron, right? They, we've already announced Neutron, and now we're going to learn more uh, about the vehicle. Hopefully we're going to learn a lot. Uh, they have a very cool logo for the Neutron rocket already, uh, on the splash screen for their page, for their, for their live stream. It looks really cool. So you're going to be able to view this, uh, on YouTube is probably the best place to go. They've already got an event set up so you can, you know, go into YouTube and, and get a reminder for it. Uh, Delta V in the chat, uh, points out that they posted a job that may have leaked the name of their new engine, uh, which, uh, this leak suggests it's called Archimedes. Who knows if that's uh, an internal uh, reference or, or what they're actually going to call the engine. But hopefully we'll, we'll be finding out. It's going to be really cool. Big rockets. Okay, so if that's enough height for you and you're ready to, to tune in and watch this, uh, YouTube is the place to go. It's going to be uh, December 2nd at 8 a.m. Eastern, 5 a.m. Pacific, or 1300 UTC.
0: So after that, on December 5th, we have the launch uh, of an Atlas V in the 551 configuration. That's launching STP-3. So that's, the I believe, the name of the mission. But it's launching um, mm-hmm. a satellite, the STP-SAT-6, which looks like is a pretty interesting satellite. Uh, this is actually a geosynchronous satellite that uh, is designed to detect nuclear detonations from space. And it also does some other space weather type of monitoring. Pretty interesting. And there's also going to be another payload, which is uh, the LCRD, which is the uh, the Laser Communications Relay Demonstration Satellite. So that's really cool. I think we had mentioned that probably last Week or the week before that, so a couple of really cool payloads on that, and yeah, the five five one configuration, right? So that's five boosters in a five meter fairing and just the one upper stage engine, five boosters on board. That's is that the maximum amount that an Atlas Five can carry?
2: Yeah, yeah, it's it's five five one is is the biggest unless you do a five five two and go to the.
0: Okay, five five the one. Okay, yeah. All right, yeah. So that's pretty much the as big as you get, unless you go with that upper stage um, or go, two, go to two, a heavy two, two engines. Yeah. yeah. So that will be launching on December fifth at o nine o four UTC through eleven o four. So what is that like a two hour launch window on the fifth, and that's launching from Cape Canaveral from Space Launch Complex forty one. So that'll be a really cool. Launch to check out, see an Atlas V liftoff.
1: And then we have another Soyuz, but this is not a STB, aka a 2.1B. This is an STA, aka 2.1A. Uh, <laughs> and this is for, this will be uh, launching the Soyuz MS-20 mission, which is going to carry uh, cosmonaut Alexander Mazurkin, as well as two tourists, Japanese billionaire Yusaku Maezawa and his assistant Yozo Hirano. And so, uh, yeah, so uh, Mr. I bought out a starship is going to go. <laughs> actually, well, he'll actually yeah. go into space, so good for him. And so this uh, launch will take place on Wednesday, December 8th uh, at 0738 UTC, and we'll be flying out of Baikonur iPad 31.6.
2: And that will be uh, rendezvousing with the station very shortly thereafter. The coverage begins at 8 a.m. on Tuesday the 8th. Uh, 8 a.m. Eastern time, of course, uh, because it's on NASA TV. So that's when the coverage starts. The docking is scheduled uh, to take place at Uh, 8.01 a.m. Eastern Time. Uh, The hatch opening is a little after that. It looks like they're going to take a break in coverage and come back at 10 a.m. for the uh, opening. Oh, 10.15 a.m. for the opening, uh, which is scheduled at 10.35 a.m. Eastern Time. Okie dok, Those are your upcoming spaceflight events.
0: And so with that, let's deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music.
1: We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And a special shout out to Chris, a.k.a. Sty Garfield, Colin, Deathkin, Delta V, and Mike for joining us live in today's chat. Thank
2: you. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links,
0: and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies.
1: You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info
0: at orbitalmechanics.com. All right, that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you. Thank you.